Welcome to UCI Law Talks, presenting bold perspectives on law from the University of California, Irvine School of Law. Join the conversation on Twitter at UCI Law, hashtag UCI Law Talks. Good afternoon and welcome. My name is Rick Hassan of the UC Irvine School of Law, and I'm pleased to welcome you to the sixth annual UCI Law Supreme Court Term in Review. This event brings together the law school, the University of California, Irvine, the larger and broader Orange County community, and viewers on our live stream across the country and the world to talk about one of the most important but most publicly neglected institutions, the United States Supreme Court. We have an outstanding group of scholars, lawyers, and journalists to talk about the remarkable Supreme Court term that just completed. Uh, but first, I want to thank the UCI Law staff for the tremendous support they've given to this event, especially our event manager, Cassandra Flores, and our communications staff, especially Colleen Tarakani and Iris Yokoi. I also want to thank the law school's dean up on the panel, Erwin Chemerinsky, for supporting this event now in its sixth year, an event which started with fewer than 100 people in our law school's classroom to this tremendous crowd today. In fact, one of our panelists, Dahlia Lithwick, was at that first event as well as our fourth event. And at the first event, I recall her saying, and you can watch this on video, what a dud the Supreme Court's term had been that year. Uh, we would not say that about this year's term. Last year at our event, uh, Dean Erwin Chemerinsky commenting on the surprising liberal turn of the Supreme Court, including its decision in Obergefell versus Hodges, recognizing a constitutional right to same-sex marriage, and King versus Burwell, which saved uh, Obamacare from being killed by what might have been a typographical error. Uh, he, he said, that it, though, that if the 2014 term was Revenge of the Jedi, the 2015 term was likely to be The Empire Strikes Back, <laughs> with cases on the docket, including one that could have killed uh, public sector labor unions. But then Justice Antonin Scalia, brilliant conservative justice who helped make up a five-justice conservative majority on the Supreme Court, died suddenly at a Texas ranch in February 2016, turning the entire term upside down leaving four liberals, four conservatives, and a vacancy that the Republican Senate has so far refused to fill. This term saw decisions and non-decisions on not just labor unions, but on the president's immigration power, affirmative action, abortion, criminal procedure protections, the one person, one vote rule, the meaning of corruption, and much more. I'm going to briefly introduce our panelists who will talk about these and other cases. I'm going to keep these introductions brief. You have the full bios in your program. Uh, I know that uh, I could spend the entire time just giving the speakers bios, but better to just get right to it. And so I will introduce the speakers uh, uh, as we go down the line. Uh, Howard Bashman, uh, to my immediate right, has always had a singular focus on the practice of law, achieving excellence in appellate advocacy. Today, Bashman is a nationally known appellate attorney who's compiled a notable record of success representing clients before the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit and Pennsylvania State Appellate Courts. Among his many other accomplishments, Howard is the author of the must-read How Appealing blog, where I turn really, literally the first thing before I even get out of bed every morning. I'm, that's no joke. Uh, the blog uh, keeps track of developments at the Supreme Court and other key courts in the nation, and Supreme Court justices have been known to have it open on their browsers uh, as people have come through the court. Uh, Dahlia Lithwick writes about the courts and law for Slate and hosts the podcast Amicus, which I listen to on my commutes. Uh, to school. Among her many accolades, her writing has been described as spicy by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, <laughs> whose recent controversy we'll discuss later in the program. Uh, Ginsburg is, after all, the 90-pound gorilla in the room. 
<laughs> dean Erwin Chemerinsky is the founding dean and distinguished professor of law and Raymond Pike professor of First Amendment law at the University of California Irvine School of Law with a joint appointment in political science. He taught at Duke, where he won the Duke Scholar Teacher of the Year Award. Before that, he taught for 21 years at USC. He's one of the country's leading experts on constitutional law. Uh, Robert Barnes has been a Washington Post reporter and editor since 1987. He joined the paper to cover Maryland politics and has served in various editing positions, including Metropolitan Editor and National Political Editor. He has covered the Supreme Court since 2006, and I think this morning he was the first person to tweet out the Justice Ginsburg non-apology apology. <laughs> and Professor Karen Gustafson of UCI, Law's, uh, of UCI Law focuses her research and scholarship in an interdisciplinary matter, focusing on the role of law in remedying inequality and reinforcing inequality. Her research over the last decade has focused on expanding the administrative overlap between welfare and the criminal justice system, as well as experiences of those individuals and families caught in those systems. Her current research explores the history of law in regulating African-American families and in regulating labor among poor people in various ethnic backgrounds. She holds a JD and a PhD from UC Berkeley and previously taught at the University of Connecticut. To keep this program moving, I've asked the panelists to speak for no more than seven minutes each on one of the court's cases this term as well as a theme of the term. That will leave us with hopefully over half the time for the panelists to engage with one another and to take questions from me, from the audience where there are microphones set up in the back uh, for people to queue up later, as well as for people watching the live webcast who can uh, put questions up on Twitter using the hashtag UCILawScotus, all one word. At question time, I will have two requirements. First, the question must be brief, and second, it must be a question. Uh, <laughs> there are no filibusters here, even if they continue in the United States Senate for now. Uh, and uh, finally, uh, housekeeping, please uh, keep your applause until the end uh, so that we'll have maximum time to talk. And we'll, we'll start with Howard Bashman. Oh, I'm sorry, we're going to start with Karen Gustafson. I forgot, sorry about that. And work our way this way. All right. Um, so for the second time, the Supreme Court took up the case of Abigail Fisher, the white plaintiff who challenged the University of Texas's undergraduate admissions policies. Um, and the admissions policies at the University of Texas have changed over the years in response to changing um, Supreme Court law. Um, and uh, most of the people in the room who have law degrees are familiar with those prior cases, starting with Bakke in 1978, um, uh, the case that challenged UC Davis's medical school's um, system of admissions, which, set which allocated 84 seats to white students um, and 16 seats to underrepresented disadvantaged minorities. The Supreme Court uh, justices could not agree on uh, uh, that opinion. Uh, Justice Powell's opinion has uh, uh, been the most influential and uh, his diversity rationale is what's still in play in uh, Fisher's case this year. But there's also uh, Gratz versus Bollinger, the 2003 uh, challenge to University of Michigan's undergraduate admissions system, which allocated predetermined points um, to racial minority students, and Grutter versus, versus Bollinger, uh, where the Supreme Court um, uh, 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 upheld the University of Michigan's system at the law school, where they didn't assign predetermined points to racial status 
um, but did a holistic review which considered as one of many factors an, a student's um, racial or ethnic background. Um, now, Gretz and, Gretz and Grutter together held that race-based quotas or assigning students admission points based solely on race uh, is a problematic practice, but that race might be among a number of other factors to consi consider in promoting the pedagogical goals of diversity. Now, in response to those decisions, the University of Texas, um, uh, through a legislative decree and then by working it out through policy um, at the university level, developed what was known as the 10% program. And under that program, 10% of the, the top 10% of uh, graduates from Texas high schools were eligible uh, to attend uh, uh, public universities. Now, in effect, uh, because the University of Texas Austin, the flagship school, only had a limited number of seats, it meant that only eight, the top 8.5% of students uh, would be admitted. So under the admissions program, 75% of the slots were reserved for students who had uh, graduated uh, within that top 10 tier. And uh, the remaining 25% of the seats were allocated to students who had graduated in the top 25%. But a broader, more holistic review was given to those students. Um, they were assigned, uh, they were assessed based on not only their grades and their SAT score, um, but also personal essays, recommendation letters, and uh, uh, a personal achievement index, which took into account the readings of these documents um, in assessing students' skills at leadership, their participation in extracurriculars, uh, their awards, community service, and special circumstances. And special circumstances could include consideration of race, ethnicity, um, uh, whether a student uh, was raised in a single parent family, um, uh, uh, whether the sp student spoke English as a second language. Uh, Abigail Fisher challenged this practice. She was a white student who did not graduate uh, within the top 10% of her class in Texas, uh, which put her into the second um, tier of analysis. And based on that, she was not admitted into the University of Texas. Um, uh, the first, uh, so in Fisher 1, uh, written, the majority opinion was written by Justice Kennedy, and uh, there he wrote that strict scrutiny applies to the use of race uh, in admissions and that the burden falls on the university uh, to demonstrate that its goals of, um, of diversity serve a compelling governmental interest and that the means chosen are narrowly tailored. And the Supreme Court kicked the case back to um, the Fifth Circuit to determine whether the university had satisfied that burden. Many thought it was over. Um, but Abigail Fisher, uh, when the uh, um, uh, case came back, appealed. And, uh, the Fifth Circuit ruled that the university had indeed met its burden and um, uh, Fisher appealed arguing um, uh, that her equal protection rights were still 
um, being violated. Now, the decision in Fisher II was, again, written by Justice Kennedy. All eyes were on Kennedy, wondering what he would do. Um, and uh, it's an interesting opinion for several reasons. One, the Supreme Court acknowledged race as relevant and diversity as an important pedagogical goal. Also, the Supreme Court really highlights that data matters. The Supreme Court encourages regular evaluation of data um, in considering uh, uh, and consideration of student experience in assessing its values and tailoring its methods to achieving that. Um, and as someone with social science background, I favor data analysis rather than ideological approaches and abstract reasoning. Um, more significantly, the court signals that achieving diversity may not be a short-term endeavor and that it involves process and reassessment, that methods and time frames should not be considered static. Now, some of you may remember that, the, that uh, Justice O'Connor's uh, majority opinion in Grutter stated, we expect that 25 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to further the interests approved today. Fisher too, however, suggests that achieving diversity is a long-term goal. Uh, still, my reaction to uh, the opinions, the majority and, and dissent opinions, uh, was uh, could be filed under this theme. Don't make direct eye contact. Avoid any direct discussion of race. <laughs> <laughs> the majority strongly signals that they don't want to hear any more affirmative action cases. Um, uh, and uh, 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 the Alito dissent avoids employing the racial gaze in a number of ways. It makes a number of distracting arguments uh, that diversity and critical mass are slippery terms, that racial parity is not an acceptable governmental interest, and that the process discriminates against Asian Americans, a deflection and wedge argument um, particularly in light of the fact that a number of, of Asian American advocacy groups supported um, the use of the system in place. Um, finally, uh, uh, the uh, dissent avoids race as a salient issue of identity um, or education, something I, I will just leave there and come back to later. But there are a number of uh, other cases that maybe we can talk about in the discussion where the, ra where the Supreme Court either touches upon or actively sidesteps race this term. Um, not only Fisher, but also Foster v. Chapman, which had to do with uh, peremptory challenges uh, when it came to juror selection. University of Texas, which addressed uh, the DACA case. Um, and Utah versus Streif, which uh, Dean Chemerinsky will discuss. Um, but we are still grappling with race in this country. I hope that uh, we and the Supreme Court will maintain a steady gaze on racial equality and be brave enough not to avert its eyes. Thanks, and we'll turn it over to uh, Bob. Uh, hi, thanks very much for inviting me. It's great to be here. Uh, I'm, I'll make a couple of uh, broad comments about the term and then talk about a specific case. Uh, as you've heard, this was a, a year that was supposed to be teed up for the conservatives. Uh, there were cases, challenges to affirmative action, restrictions on abortion, complaints about labor union fees, uh, bold attacks on the way electoral districts are drawn and on President Obama's use of executive power. 
And all of those ended uh, either with liberal uh, victories or tr ties that set no precedent or didn't address some of those issues. Uh, it's often said that the addition of a justice to the court creates a whole new court. And we also found that the uh, subtraction of a justice from the court creates a whole new court. And that's what happened. This, this term is really uh, Scalia and post-Scalia. And so, uh, so many of those decisions were uh, affected by his absence. I think it also signals uh, that the era, at least for a time, of conservative legal groups pushing cases towards the Supreme Court has ended. Uh, there is not uh, going to be the reception that there was before. And so I think that that could mark a big change depending on, of course, what happens in the election and who the ninth justice becomes. Um, as always, Justice Kennedy was the pivotal player, uh, and he gave the left some important and I think su somewhat surprisingly broad victories uh, on abortion and on affirmative action. Um, and without Scalia there, you saw some interesting, you saw some of the other justices emerge this term in a way that uh, sometimes they, uh, you don't see. Uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, of course, uh, on February 29th, asked a question at oral argument uh, for the first time in a decade. Uh, my colleague uh, Dana Milbank likes to say that he only asked questions on leap day. Um, <laughs> But, and because he only did it that one time, uh, but he wrote a number of uh, very pointed dissents uh, that got across uh, his point. Uh, Justice Sotomayor used a, a series of dissents to speak quite frankly about race and discrimination as what she sees as inequality in the justice system. Uh, some say that she's becoming the heir to Thurgood Marshall uh, in that. I think Justice Breyer played uh, and probably an interesting behind-the-scenes uh, role uh, in looking for compromise. He was given the abortion decision to write uh, by Justice Kennedy. Um, Ginsburg, uh, in her blunt uh, way, issued a uh, concurring opinion saying no more of these uh, restriction on abortion cases as long as Roe v. Wade uh, remains in place. And uh, I think the Chief Justice and Justice Kagan played important roles in uh, trying to get the court past this uh, period of four to four votes. Uh, I th think it was interesting that Justice Kagan, uh, often clearly on the liberal side of the court, sided with Roberts and Kennedy uh, about as often as she did with uh, her fellow liberals. So that's a, a quick rundown on the term that we can talk about. I wanted to talk to you about the McDonald case. This involves the Virginia governor, uh, Robert McDonald, uh, who along with his wife, Maureen McDonald, uh, were indicted by the federal government on honest services fraud and Hobbs Act extortion charges. And it was related to their acceptance of $175,000 in loans, gifts, and other benefits from a Virginia businessman named Johnny Williams. He had developed a product. He wanted the um, universities in Virginia to study it and sort of give it the good uh, housekeeping seal of approval. 
and he did a lot for the governor uh, and his family. Uh, this is one of those cases that I think really divides lawyers and uh, the rest of the world because he had an awful lot of support saying that his conviction uh, was terrible and set a terrible precedent. Um, as uh, the Chief Justice uh, wrote, White House counsel who worked in every administration from President Reagan to President Obama warned that the gov government's view of uh, this law would, have, uh, would chill federal officials' interactions with the people they serve and damage their ability to perform their duties. He was supported by a huge number of former attorney generals from around the country, 41 Democrats and 35 Republicans. And uh, so on, you had that on one side, and then you had all the people who wrote to me and said, what, this isn't <laughs> illegal? Um, because it certainly seemed bad, and the court went out of its way to say it probably was bad. But they ruled unanimously that an official act, which is what he has to uh, perform, is something that is not just arranging meetings, as he did, or introducing Williams to people, or calling people in his administration saying, I, I need you to talk to this guy because he has something that we uh, might be interested in. He, in fact, in front of his staff, took one of these pills and said, it's working well for me. Um, <laughs> But nothing ever happened for Johnny Williams. The universities didn't do the studies. There was no testimony presented that officials had been pressured by the governor to actually uh, do it. And so the court said that there has to be more than that. Uh, you have to show that you took some official action and it's more than what he did. Now the court did leave it open uh, for prosecutors to go after him again. Uh, they said that they weren't expressing uh, uh, any opinion on that, but that the, the jury that convicted him got the wrong instructions. They were informed that almost any act that the governor did could count toward this official act, and the court said that that was wrong. So we don't know uh, if uh, government, Governor McDonnell will be uh, retried, but we do know things look a lot better for him uh, than they did last fall when he was about to report to prison for two years. Thanks very much, and we'll turn it over to Erwin. I want to begin by speaking in my role as dean. I want to thank my terrific colleague, Rick Hassan, for suggesting the idea for this program and for organizing each year. I want to thank our wonderful events coordinator, Cassandra Flores. Putting together an event with an audience with 180, uh, 825 people is a major undertaking, and she does it so flawlessly. I want to thank the panelists who are giving time from their busy schedules to be here. And most of all, I want to thank all of you for coming here today. Everything changed in the Supreme Court on February 13th when Justice Scalia passed away. From 1971, when Richard Nixon's third and fourth nominees to the Supreme Court were confirmed, until February 13th, there were always at least five, and sometimes as many as seven justices would appointed by Republican presidents. Much more often than not, when the court was ideologically decided, divided, the result was in a conservative direction. But no longer are there five justices on the court who are described as conservative. No longer are there five justices who are appointed by Republican presidents. Thus, what you saw this year was, if the Supreme Court 
had, if the conservatives on the court got Justice Kennedy's vote, then they split four to four. If the liberals got Justice Kennedy's vote, as they did say in affirmative action abortion, then there was a majority for that result. To give you some statistics about the term, the Supreme Court decided 63 cases after briefing and oral argument. It's the fewest number since at least 1932, as far back as I can find statistics. Justice Kennedy was in the majority in 98% of all the cases, which is stunning and maybe unprecedented. I want to talk about the one ideologically divided case that I can identify where there was a conservative majority. The case was Utah versus Streiff. I think it's a very important case about police behavior and also about race and society. Police in Utah got an anonymous tip that there was drug dealing going on from a house. The police decided to watch the house. They saw a man briefly go into the house and then come out. An officer by the name of Douglas Frackle stopped the man and asked him his name. He said that his name was Edward Streiff. At this point, the officer did a warrant check with regard to Streiff. He found an outstanding warrant for an old traffic violation. At this point, he arrested Streiff. He did a search incident to the arrest. He found drugs. The question in the case is whether the drugs had to be excluded because the search was the result of an illegal stop. No one disputed. The state of Utah conceded that the stop of Streiff lacked reasonable suspicion. So the Utah Supreme Court said that the evidence had to be excluded as the fruit of the poisonous tree. But the United States Supreme Court reversed in a five to four decision. The Supreme Court said that the exclusion rule didn't apply, that the evidence should be admitted. Justice Clarence Thomas wrote the opinion for the court, joined by Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kennedy, Breyer, and Alito. Justice Sotomayor wrote a dissent, joined in large part by Justice Ginsburg. Justice Kagan also wrote a dissent. In other words, there was a conservative majority here because Justice Breyer joined with the four conservative justices, Roberts, Kennedy, Thomas, and Alito. We shouldn't be surprised by this. There have been a number of instances in recent years where Justice Breyer joined with the conservative justices to create a majority in Fourth Amendment search and seizure cases. A few years ago in Maryland versus King, the court ruled five to four that the police can take DNA from somebody arrested for a serious crime to see if it matches for an unsolved crime in the police database. It was the same five justices in the majority. Justice Scalia wrote the dissent. There was another case just a few years ago that involved whether if police get an anonymous tip that a car is driving erratically, whether the police can then pull over the car without observing erratic behavior. Justice Breyer again votes with the conservative justices to create the majority. Justice Breyer has become a very pro-law enforcement judge with regard to Fourth Amendment cases. Justice Thomas, writing for the court here, said that the exclusionary rule did not apply because of the so-called attenuation exception to the exclusionary rule. If between the illegal stop and the search, enough has occurred that one could say that the taint is attenuated, then the evidence is admissible. Justice Thomas said three factors are looked at with regard to attenuation. First, how close in time is the search to the illegal stop? Well, here the search occurred almost immediately after the illegal stop. That would say there's not very much attenuation. 
Second, are there intervening circumstances? And Justice Thomas said there's an important intervening circumstance here. The police found an outstanding warrant. And third, was the police misconduct flagrant? And Justice Thomas says there was nothing flagrant about what the police did. Based on all of that, the court said that the evidence should have been admitted. The exclusion rule didn't apply. Justice Sotomayor wrote a very powerful dissent. She talked about the number of outstanding warrants that exist. She has statistics that in some communities, like in Ferguson, Missouri, a substantial part of the population has outstanding warrants. She talked about how degrading a stop is to those who subject this by the police. In a part of the opinion writing just for herself, she spoke as a woman of color of what this means in minority communities, how parents of color need to talk to their children about how to behave when the police are stopped. She said what this case means is that the police can illegally stop somebody hoping to find an outstanding warrant, and then if they do, they can do a search. What's admitted, what's found will be admitted into evidence. Justice Kagan wrote a separate dissent making the same point that this gives the police an incentive to illegally stop people knowing they'll benefit if they'll find a warrant and the evidence is admissible. This case comes down in a time when there's a great deal of necessary focus on our society about policing. And what's so disturbing about the case is just what Justices Sotomayor and Kagan say. It encourages the police to illegally stop people knowing they can benefit from it if evidence is gained. Thank you. Talia? Um, so I want to, I guess I'm going to add my thanks uh, for inviting me. It's a thrill to be back. And um, I also just, uh, in terms of just sort of precatory comments about the term, I would sort of second what you've already heard, which is one, uh, the, the shadow of Justice Scalia's loss over the second half of the term can't be overstated. It was an entirely different court uh, that reconvened with his chair draped in black uh, after his death. And, and I would say right to the very end of the term, you could really see uh, that people were grieving, uh, his colleagues were grieving, and that it was not the same court it was when we started on the first Monday of October. Uh, the other theme that I think you've heard from other panelists that absolutely overarches this term again is that it's just as Anthony Kennedy's world and we all just get to live in it. And again, you know, it, it's an, one thing to be the swing justice on a, on a court of nine members, but to be the swing justice on a court with an even number is a real feat, and yet he still manages to do it. Um, and so this was very much a term where, and we'll you know, talk about the cases in a more granular way, but where we really see the ways that Kennedy's imprimatur is on absolutely everything that is of consequence by the end of the term. And the last thing I would just say in terms of um, big themes is that we really did see after Justice Scalia died, I think we saw Justices Alito and Thomas kind of stay on the right of the court. And I think we watched Kennedy and uh, Robert sort of move to the center with Justice Breyer and Justice Kagan so that you really had a sense that the center was going to try to keep the court out of the front pages of the newspaper. This was not going to be a riven 4-4 term. This was going to be as much as they could try to be a minimalist, careful court, and that uh, the justices, you know, who, who didn't want to play that game stayed at their, in their corners, but there was a big, I think, attempt to modulate the voice of the court around something that looked like the center. 
Now, I'm going to talk about whole women's health, and if I have a minute, I'll talk um, about Zubik, but these are the two big uh, reproductive freedom cases. And it can't be overstated what a big deal it is that after, you know, since 1992, the court has not had an abortion case in the order of magnitude of whole women's health versus Hellerstedt. And this is, as you know, an appeal of HB2. That was the Texas statute that was passed in uh, 2013, famously over Wen Wendy Davis's pink sneakered filibuster. And the two provisions that were at issue before the court this year were one, the admitting privileges provision that said that physicians who were going to perform abortions had to have admitting privileges at local hospitals 30 miles uh, away and the Ambulatory Surgical Center, the ASC requirement that says that any clinic performing abortions in Texas had to be retrofitted as an ambulatory surgical center, which meant widening hallways, changing broom closets. Uh, you had to be able to push two gurneys past each other in the hall, even though gurneys are never used. Uh, but the idea was that this was so prohibitively expensive that clinics would be put out of business. And if HB2 had been allowed to go into effect, we would have gone from about 42 clinics in Texas to 20, and then had it fully gone into effect, had the court not stayed it, we would have been down to about seven or eight clinics serving the 5.4 million women of childbearing age in the state of Texas. So that was what was on the line. And constitutionally, the question was, what is an undue burden? Does this place, right, this is the language of Casey, does this place an undue burden on a woman seeking to uh, protect her constitutional right to abortion? And the question for the court is, what does undue burden even really mean? Other than in the heads of Sandra Day O'Connor and David Souter and Anthony Kennedy, who crafted the majority opinion in Casey, what does it mean to burden a woman's uh, right to choose? And even though we know that technically it means you can't put a, quote, substantial obstacle in the way, what does a substantial obstacle look like? And the um, Fifth Circuit had upheld these provisions. So when it comes to the Supreme Court, and this is a case where Irwin is exactly right, had Scalia been sitting on the court, it looked very much as though this was going to be a 5-4 decision to pretty much eviscerate whatever was remaining of Roe, because if you could be allowed to put this kind of burden on a woman's right to choose, pretty much anything would be permissible. And it's important to understand that even though the court has not heard a major abortion case since the 1990s, in the states, the regulations placed on the right to choose have been unbelievable in the last few years. Uh, in, in the last, uh, since 2011, there have been 288 restrictions placed by the states uh, on a woman's right to choose. So this has enormous consequences, not just for ambulatory surgical centers and admitting privileges, but for all of the so-called trap laws, right, targeted regulation of abortion providers that say that what they're doing is regulating women's health, they're protecting uh, mother's health, but what they're in fact doing in many instances is really precluding women for, from accessing clinics at all. The Fifth Circuit rationale in upholding HB2 was that they said this doesn't affect that many women. It's only a, quote, small fraction of women in Texas who are being prevented. Uh, you know, only about 1.7 million women, they said, would have to drive between 100 and 200 miles <laughs> to get an abortion. So that was not a significant enough number. Um, 
And the other thing that the Fifth Circuit did, and this is important, is they said it's not for us to reason why. We're not going to second guess the legislature. If the legislature has put these laws into effect to protect women, we defer to that. And needless to say, oral argument, which happens very shortly after Justice Scalia dies, is, and I just say this as a woman, watching three women at the Supreme Court in an abortion case for the first time ever was pretty cool. Because the three women justices just like strapped on their skates and went to town. Um, particularly in this case on poor Scott Keller, who was the Solicitor of General of Texas, who kept trying to explain that these laws really do uh, protect women's health. And the three women justices were just, what? What? Um, and so we sort of had a sense, I think, coming out of it that this was going to be uh, a 4 4. And then Justice Kennedy, who has never uh, upheld, uh, uh, I'm sorry, struck down an abortion regulation, uh, save for one, uh, suddenly flipped and joined the progressive branch of the court and said, yes, this is a bridge too far. Uh, these regulations are too much. They do uh, burden women. And uh, the case was assigned by Kennedy, who would have been the senior justice in the uh, majority, to Stephen Breyer, to the white guy. And Breyer goes on to write, uh, a very, very crisp and thoughtful uh, explanation of why we do have uh, the prerogative to probe into why the states did these regulations. And these regulations do not, in fact, make women healthier or safer. They, in fact, harm women. And therefore, uh, HB2 falls. And really, I think the takeaway from this one is Justice Kennedy, we don't know why this was too much for him, but this was too much for him, and it was really a fascinating moment to see him join on with an opinion that not just did away with these two provisions, but makes a lot of these trap laws going forward very, very difficult to enforce. Thanks, and uh, turn to Howard. Well, thank you so much for having me here today, and uh, thanks to this wonderful audience for turning out. Uh, in, in terms of the themes of this year at the courts, uh, there's, I have nothing to add to what my wonderful predecessors have, have said. I think that I'm in complete agreement with uh, their views on that. Uh, the, the case that I'm going to talk about today arises from my home state of Pennsylvania and uh, arose in the city of Philadelphia, which is uh, where I was born so, so many years ago. A and it's a case involving the death penalty, the appearance of judicial bias, and uh, issues of judicial recusal. The, the name of the case is Williams against Pennsylvania. And uh, it, it has the distinction of having been argued on the day that uh, Clarence Thomas spoke, but, but was not the case in which he, uh, he did speak. So, so uh, <laughs> minutes after everyone's in shock that he said something, uh, that, that case uh, concluded, and the next case that was called was the case that I'm going to discuss this afternoon. Uh, so it was argued on February 29th of this year, and it was decided on June the 9th of, of this year. <coughs> and uh, it was a case that in which Justice Kennedy wrote the majority opinion for a five to three court. And in dissent uh, were the Chief Justice, Justice Alito, who joined the Chief Justice's dissent, and uh, Clarence Thomas, who wrote a separate dissent. The, the holding of the case was that the due process clause requires the recusal of judges who had significant personal involvement as a prosecutor in critical decisions regarding a defendant's case. The critical decision that was involved in this case was whether or not the prosecution would seek the death penalty when the case was going to trial. Now, the case went to trial some 
28 to 30 years before it, it reached the U.S. Supreme Court. So, so at that time, a fellow by the name of Ronald Castile was the district attorney for the city of Philadelphia. And uh, he was a tough-on-crime prosecutor who, who had sent more than 40 people to death row during his tenure. And at some point during that tenure, uh, ba back in the 1980s, uh, a memo came across his desk as asking whether or not in this particular case involving an 18-year-old man who had murdered two people at least, uh, one a year before and then the second one which gave rise to this prosecution, uh, sh should face the death penalty in the second prosecution. And, uh, and District Attorney Castile wrote on the memo, yes, I approve seeking the death penalty in this case. Uh, and so the case was tried to a jury and the jury returned a guilty verdict and the death penalty was imposed as the sentence in this case. So time goes by, there's a direct appeal, there's a federal habeas corpus action, the, the defendant receives no relief. In, in Pennsylvania, you can come back to court time after time, it seems, uh, to, to argue that uh, your sentence should be set aside and you should have a new sentencing hearing. And, and so at some point in this decade, uh, the, the defendant came back into court and argued that there had been prosecu prosecutorial misconduct in his case and that the prosecution had failed to turn over certain Brady materials, which would have, had they been given to his lawyer, allowed the lawyer to argue that the motive for committing the killing was something different than what the prosecution argued. The prosecution had argued a motive of theft, that they were robbing the victim, and, uh, the, and what the uh, prosecution supposedly hid from the defendant's counsel was that the actual motive was that the uh, defendant had been sexually abused by the victim. Uh, why the defendant uh, couldn't tell that to his own lawyer himself, uh, you know, is, is certainly a question. And uh, what, what the defendant argued in his defense uh, was that he wasn't there. So, so his defense was he had nothing to do with it. Uh, th this other defense certainly, it seems to be in conflict uh, with, uh, with the defense that he took the stand and testified to in his own, in his own case. Uh, but, uh, but putting that all aside, uh, when, when this uh, fifth collateral challenge finally reached the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, uh, the defense had access to the pros prosecution's files, which showed that uh, District Attorney Castile had approved in this memo the seeking of the death penalty. So when the case came before the PA Supreme Court, at that point, the defense asked for Chief Justice Castile to step aside. Uh, Chief Justice Castile refused to step aside in this case involving the Brady issue and the court, the, the PA Supreme Court, which was also shorthanded by a justice at the time, uh, unanimously ruled six to zero that uh, the trial court's setting aside of the death sentence due to this alleged prosecutorial misconduct was wrong and reinstated the death penalty in the case. Uh, of course, now the case is going to be sent back to the PA Supreme Court to hold a new hearing to decide whether or not the death penalty should be set aside. Uh, Chief Justice Castile has since retired from the court due to having reached the mandatory retirement age of 70, uh, and, and so he won't be there in any event to, uh, to decide the case now that it's been sent back. As to why the decision is important, I, I think that we realize that many judges reach the bench as former prosecutors, and, and so uh, the holding may give defendants and ability to challenge, raise challenges in, in many cases if the judge somehow was involved in, in the defendant's case at some earlier stage. Now you might think, well, most judges might realize that you shouldn't 
sit as the judge in, in such a case, and maybe that's true, but now it's a constitutional principle of due process that they can't do it. If, if they feel otherwise, they, the case will be reversed. Uh, the, the decision is also important secondarily because it continues the federalization and due processization of, of recusal grounds. Uh, an, earlier PA, an earlier U.S. Supreme Court decision from 2009, which was five to four, uh, involved judicial contributions. That was the Caperton versus Massey Cole case, and the Supreme Court ruled there in, in another Justice Kennedy opinion uh, that uh, the judge who received all these campaign contributions should not have heard a case involving the donor who had uh, invested lots of money in, in, in running ads against the opposition, opposing candidate for the court. Uh, some people thought that perhaps the Chief Justice would join the majority in the Williams case in, uh, in saying that the death sentence had to be set aside because the judge had an impermissible conflict due to the fact that the Chief Justice wrote the decision in Williams v. Lee the term before, which upheld against a First Amendment challenge Florida's prohibition on direct solicitation of funds by judges, but of course the Chief Justice did not. In, in the case itself, the impact of the ruling is likely to be very insignificant because it seems to me that this particular habeas collateral attack does not have a whole lot of merit. So I don't anticipate that the PA, of, the PA Supreme Court in reconsidering the case is likely to do anything different. So chances are the death penalty will be reimposed but the case still is likely to be very significant for other prosecutions. Thank you. All right, so we've now completed the first part uh, of the program, and so for the next part of the program, uh, we'll be doing questions and answers. I'll ask some questions, questions from the audience. There are four microphones, so you can start queuing up with those four microphones, uh, and uh, uh, as well as questions that will be coming uh, over um, the internet using the hashtag UCILawScotus. And let me, uh, let me uh, use the moderator's prerogative to ask the first question, and it's the question I alluded to earlier involving Justice Ginsburg. So if you happen to have been uh, without internet access for the last week, you might have missed this. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Justice Ginsburg gave an interview last Friday to um, the Associated Press in which she made some comments about uh, how she was concerned about Donald Trump uh, becoming uh, president. Uh, she then gave an interview that appeared Sunday, although the interview I think was given on the same day on Friday, last Friday, to Adam Liptak of the New York Times, in which um, she went further. She said that um, uh, uh, she might uh, follow her late husband's advice that it's time to move to New Zealand if, uh, <laughs> uh, if Trump would be elected. Uh, she said she feared for the country and for the court if he would be elected. Uh, then uh, on Monday, um, uh, Joan Biskupic, who's a reporter for Reuters and CNN and who's actually going to be in residence at UCI uh, next year, uh, this coming academic year, we're very happy about that. Uh, she had a pre-scheduled interview with Justice Ginsburg, she's writing a book about Chief Justice Roberts, and asked about this, and rather than pull back in the face of some criticism, it's not every day that Chief Justice Ginsburg gets uh, criticized in an editorial in the New York Times, uh, which is what happened uh, to her. Um, uh, she doubled down and she called Trump a faker, among <laughs> other things. Um, this led to a series of commentaries, including commentary by the dean, commentary by Dahlia, commentary by me, all, everyone taking a different position on whether this is a problem. Uh, but then this morning, 
uh, as Bob first reported, uh, Justice uh, Ginsburg issued a statement uh, of the sort of apology, not really apology, where she said, I I'm sorry if what I said hurt you, uh, a variety <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, sorry if you might have been offended. Um, uh, and so I want to open it up to the panel to reflect on what's happened in the last few days, and I specifically want to ask two questions. First, um, if there is a Trump campaign case that makes it to the Supreme Court on an emergency basis, which could certainly happen, we've had a lot of election litigation make it to the court, would uh, Justice Ginsburg have to recuse? Should she have to recuse? And second, if this were Justice Alito on Fox saying that he would move to England rather than vote for crooked Hillary, would we be having a different discussion? <laughs> and so let me uh, open it up to uh, anyone on the panel who'd like to talk on these. Well, first, well, let me read exactly what Justice Ginsburg said uh, in her statement this morning, uh, rather than Rick's interpretation. <laughs> uh, she said, on reflection, my recent remarks in response to press inquiries were ill-advised, and I regret making them. Judges should avoid commenting on a candidate for public office. In the future, I will be more circumspect. Now, that was it. Um, and I think you could look at it as she made her point, and this is a way to end uh, the inquiries that all of us were making about why did you do this. Um, and it doesn't exactly um, uh, fall into the category that I think uh, Mr. Trump would have wanted when he said that her mind was shot, she should <laughs> resign and apologize. Uh, but it's somewhere in between. I, I think it was surprising that she did this. I think it's really unprecedented in the modern Supreme Court times for uh, a justice to comment so directly on uh, an official, uh, someone running for president. Uh, and so um, as far as recusal, I, I think the uh, legal ethicists seem somewhat uh, conflicted on that. Uh, certainly, I think we didn't need Justice Ginsburg to say this to all think that we knew who she was gonna be voting for in the fall. Um, and I think that we can say that about uh, the other justices as well, or most of them we can figure out. And certainly, they would not be recused um, from a case that involved him. And so does the fact that she said it out loud uh, make it different uh, from the others uh, is a question that I, as a reporter, shouldn't answer, but leave up to the distinguished panel. <laughs> Imagine that you're a person with great influence, highly respected, a powerful voice that commands enormous attention. Imagine that you see the country is facing a choice that you believe has the potential of undoing everything that you've worked for in your career, and even worse, heading the country down a very destructive, dangerous path that in your lifetime you've seen other countries go through. Do you sit silently, and if the worst happens, always regret that choice? Or do you speak out, even if it's against conventions, and will subject you to criticism? That's the choice that Ruth Bader Ginsburg faced, and unlike most commentators, I applaud her for speaking out. In general, there's a strong presumption. In general, there's a strong presumption that more speech is better in a democracy. 
I'm not persuaded by the harms of her speaking out. I do not believe that she has to recuse herself if a case involving Trump comes before her. She was not speaking about a case that was pending before the court. In fact, in 2000, Sandra O'Connor was widely quoted as saying that it'd be terrible for the country if Al Gore was elected, and she still participated in Bush versus Gore. Maybe even more important, Justice Ginsburg isn't going to recuse herself. Whether a justice is disqualified in a case is left entirely up to him or her. I don't believe that Justice Ginsburg would recuse herself. I don't think this tarnishes the image of the court. Justices have political views. There's nothing surprising about that. And no one should be shocked or surprised about Ginsburg's views about Trump. I don't think this hurts the court. Um, and it's not unprecedented. In fact, in the election of 1800, they couldn't get a quorum on the Supreme Court because the justs are all campaigning for John Adams' re-election. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll never know what motivated Ruth Bader Ginsburg to say this, but I think she perceives there being a candidate, unlike any other in recent memory, who's truly a demagogue who could set the country down such a dangerous path, and I felt she felt a southern need to speak up about it. I, I would just add, um, you know, and I, I say this as somebody who's been um, sitting through the incredible shrinking Merrick Garland story this year. I mean, we, the fact that we're halfway, more than halfway through this panel and his name has not come up uh, tells you all you need to know about the urgency felt around the fact that there's a vacant seat on the court, that there is a manifestly well-qualified candidate that everybody agrees should have been given a hearing, and he's not only got, not going to get a hearing and a vote, but that nobody cares. And uh, I think that is of a piece with what I've seen this term as a pretty systemic series of attacks on the court and the legitimacy of the court. And for me, the, the suggestion that the court could go for a year or two years or seven years without uh, filling a vacancy because they could just muddle along is very symptomatic of the ways in which the court is treated with contempt if it's noticed at all. And so my slight spin on what Erwin just said is that I feel that throughout this term, you know, we saw a, a vicious attack on Judge Curiel and the implication that his heritage by definition makes him biased in all cases against Trump, met with almost silence by the judicial branch. We saw an unprecedented attack by Chuck Grassley, who said that the US Supreme Court, chief amongst them John Roberts, are wildly political and they should be ashamed of themselves, met with silence at the court. And a court that limped along 4-4 and nobody complained about it, except, by the way, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who said we need an odd number. And so to me, this sort of progression of attacks on the judicial branch, attacks on the judicial branch, attacks on the judicial branch, and the continued suggestion that it doesn't matter because nobody fights for them was a little bit of what Ruth Bader Ginsburg was responding to. And so I completely uh, think that what she did violated the judicial canons. I don't think it was good for the court. But I think she also had to say something in a, in a year where nobody was getting up and saying, you know what, the court really matters, what it does matter, and the weird nihilism that allows the other two branches to eat themselves alive and then break the court can't, 
cannot persist. And to me, part of what she was doing when she said it's bad for the country and bad for the court was putting her hat in the ring and saying, let's at least have a conversation about the fact that for the first time ever, we have a nominee who's not even being listened to because that's how little the court matters. I mean, my, yes. <laughs> I guess my views lie with Justice Ginsburg's statement of today, which is upon reflection, she realizes she shouldn't have said it. And, uh, and I think that the court is better off if they do stay out of the political arena, which is what everyone expects of the courts. Uh, like, like someone said earlier, you know, we know what the political proclivities of the justices happen to be. We, we just don't need to hear about it on a day-to-day -day basis to be reminded. Uh, so, so I think that, uh, that this ended up at the right place, even if it didn't begin there. What, what might have been interesting, and maybe there's still a chance that we could see it, is uh, you know, whether Justice Ginsburg can remain a member of the court even if she's in New Zealand. Uh, you know, that <laughs> that's, uh, could be an issue that could arise. <laughs> Karen? Um, uh, you know, I, I think we pretend that the justices are apolitical and that the decision making is apolitical and uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg simply, um, you know, it, it, it's a facade we all acknowledge, um, but she brought attention to that facade. Um, uh, is that a problem? I, I think yes, in that it gives uh, people who've been so critical of the court um, a claim of impartiality. Um, uh, at the same time, this is such an unusual moment. Now, she could have just been a little bit more coy and when asked about what was going on in the world said, I have some great concerns about uh, 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 future leaders' beliefs in the rule of law. Would that be the same thing? I mean, we all know what that means, and I think a lot of us in the room are concerned at this very moment about um, uh, investment in the rule of law. Um, I, I think she did go too far, and clearly the apology was not an apology, certainly not to Donald Trump, um, uh, but I think there is a little bit of taint to the institution. And should she recuse herself? <coughs> I know she wouldn't, maybe just for appearances, but that's where I am. Thanks, I, I'll take myself out of the moderator role for two sentences and say that the standard is uh, could a justice's impropriety reasonably be questioned? And just put yourself back in the time of Bush versus Gore when the motives of everyone were up for grabs. And imagine if, if you're a Republican and the case goes up to the Supreme Court, Clinton versus Trump, and you know that this justice has said that she would rather move to New Zealand than live under Trump. Uh, it calls into question the legitimacy of both the election and the institution. All right, now we'll open up to questions. I'll come back into my moderator role. Let's start over here. Well, first, testing, is this on? Wait. Testing, is it on? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Testing, is it on? One, First of all, thank you all for coming to the wild, woolly Republican backwater of Orange County. This is a tremendous panel you've just done. It's unbelievable what you all have, have come to. 
um, present us. It's just great. A question. Uh, the great Dean Chemerinsky, how I salute you, sir, even though you're liberal, uh, <laughs> points out very cogently that we've had 45 years of conservative Supreme Court. And in that 45 years, the statistics that I track because of my nieces and nephews on education has basically gone down the toilet. When Hillary names her candidate to the Supreme Court next year, and it'll be a liberal, what can we expect from the court? Does the court have any influence on the quality of education in this country in, as for the millions of children? I'm going to answer with two points. The first is, did you know that since 1960, 78 years old is the average age which a justice has left the bench? By coincidence, Justice Scalia was 79 years old when he passed away. There will be three justices on the Supreme Court who are 78 or older in 2017, the year the next president is inaugurated. Ruth Bader Ginsburg turned 83 on March 16th this year. Anthony Kennedy turns 80 this year. Stephen Breyer turns 78. So the next president, especially if he or she serves for two terms with a chance of three and maybe four vacancies on the Supreme Court. So if you want to put this in political terms, whether you're liberal or conservative, whether you see yourself Democrat or Republican, I think there's no issue in the November election more important than who's going to fill those four seats on the Supreme Court. Now my second point goes directly to your question. In 1973, in San Antonio Board of Education versus Rodriguez, the Supreme Court held five to four that there is no right to education under the Constitution. The court held, therefore, that disparities in school funding within a metropolitan area don't violate the Constitution. It was the four Nixon appointees in the majority, joined by Justice Potter Stewart, an Eisenhower appointee. My hope would be, if there's a liberal majority on the Supreme Court, they will reconsider Rodriguez. If anything should be a fundamental right, it should be education. And if we're ever going to be a more equal society, it has to be through education. We'll take a question from my colleague, uh, Henry uh, Weinstein, is in the back. First, I'd like to thank all the panelists for terrific presentation. Uh, my question is uh, designed primarily for uh, Robert Barnes and Dahlia, but anybody else can weigh in, because about the two cases you discussed, uh, the McDonald case and the, uh, and the Texas uh, healthcare case. Um, Bob, you said in your remarks that, that the McDonald case was a case that really separated sort of lawyers from, I guess, what we'll call normal, regular human <laughs> beings. I, I try to think of myself as both on occasion. Um, and, you might um, be the rare one. I'm sorry? You might be the rare one. Oh, okay. One. Um, and one of the, what, if, you, if you look at those two cases, uh, particularly if you look at the, uh, the, first, the Texas case, the justices who ruled the majority really scrutinized the facts very closely. It seemed to be a very fact-based decision. I mean, whatever you think about it, I mean, they really went through, does this protect women, does it not, et cetera, et cetera. And then if you look at the, at the McDonald case, I, I don't mean to sound too tendentious about this, but, but I mean, the way they described that was as if this is what politicians did every day. Every day they're getting watches, they're getting Rolexes, they're get, I mean, they're getting Maseratis, and they describe this as basically the norm of political life. I mean, it's at, 
it could only be described as a sort of, and, and it sort of made me wonder, like a lot of other Supreme Court cases that I read, about how much they know about what's going on down on the ground, to sort of quote the great line that Abe Fortas used when he was arguing the Gideon case and saying that justices on Supreme Court sort of didn't know often what was going on in lower court. So I was just curious about what the two of you thought about it, because one of these cases seemed to really pay close attention to the facts, and the other ones seemed to not pay much attention to facts at all. Mm -hmm. I think that you make a good point. I thought that the oral argument in the McDonald case was very puzzling. Um, and uh, there was, you know, none of the, we now have a court in which no one has ever run for office. Uh, none of the members, uh, Justice O'Connor was the last who had uh, run for office and been elected to one. Um, you often hear the justices campaign finance uh, decisions criticized by those who say they don't really reflect the reality of how things work in the world. Um, there was a lot of talk at this about, you know, well, what if, uh, and Justice Breyer did, what if someone uh, helped someone get their passport and the, the person who got it just took them out for lunch and bought them an expensive lunch with a really nice bottle of wine. Chateau Lafitte or something, yeah. right? He yeah. named the wine, just <laughs> to be clear that he does this and frequently. It, yeah, and it's like, well, when in the world does that ever happen? I, I can't tell you the number of um, emails I got from being in Washington from federal employees who said, wait, we're not allowed to take anything. We're, you know, our rules are that we can't accept anything from anyone, so what are they talking about? Um, you know, they tried to address that a little bit in the opinion. Uh, the, uh, the Chief Justice wrote that this isn't the way they see politics as usual, that this was especially tawdry, he called it, and he mentioned the Rolexes and the Ferrari, the ball gowns. Um, but still said, you know, that it wasn't enough and that, you know, maybe they could prove the case, but maybe not. There was an interesting thing that came out in the testimony when the governor told his counsel, you know, what's happened on this request from Williams. Uh, the counsel wrote back, we have to be really careful uh, with this issue. Uh, and, um, and they were apparently careful enough. I, I would just add, I mean, I think, I think um, one of the best examples of what you're describing is in Streif, the, the case that Erwin uh, was talking about, where it became manifest pretty quickly that Justice Alito and Sotomayor had totally different notions of where warrants uh, originate and how warrants happen. And literally on the bench, it became clear that you know, this is stuff you should know. Uh, and, and that's you know, very problematic. I mean, that's their job. Uh, it's not like the cases where they don't know how, you know, pagers work and garage door opener. You know, every, we love the cases where they're like, a pager? <laughs> <laughs> but this wasn't that. This was warrants, and they still didn't know. And, and um, you know, I thought one of the most telling moments, I think the moment uh, where in Whole Women's Health, uh, you know, probably Texas loses, is when Stephen Breyer says to the SG from Texas, how many people have died? Uh, from not having access to someone with admitting privileges. And, and unfortunately, he has to go, um, none. And it's over, right? There's like one, one uh, instance of it. And so I think uh, those kind of factual questions are really important. And it's, I think it's just worth saying again, you know, we've got nine ju eight justices now who went to two law schools. Uh, 
all of them are from New York. Uh, you know, they've, the totality of jobs that they've racked up is like three. You know, they all come, their clerks, uh, you know, originate from 13 law schools and five feeder judges. I mean, the, the, the Supreme Court is, the bubble is getting smaller every single year. And it can't be stated enough, but I guess I'll say it again, what Erwin's saying about when Sonia Sotomayor says, this is what it's like to drive when you are black or brown, and those are the words she uses. What she's telling her colleagues is, you have no idea how life is experienced by the people for whom you um, make these decisions. So I think it's, there is a huge disjunction between life as experienced you know, in the Chateau Lafitte world, and life is experienced among the rest of us, and it's not a slam on the justices. Sounds like a slam, actually, but it's not. <laughs> what, what it is is what it is is me saying. You know, there needs to be a, an apparatus in place to educate them about what they don't know, and that's what worries me. What worries me is, you know, if your clerks only come from four schools and you've only come off an academic track or out of the executive branch, it's not clear how you're going to learn these things. Thank you both. I've got some questions that have come in uh, on Twitter, but let me take uh, the question over here first. Thank you. Question for Dahlia Lithwick, uh, because you mentioned two points that I thought were interesting. One was you decried the Senate's failure to give a hearing to Merrick Garland, despite the fact that he is smart and qualified by any measure, and also that perhaps the attacks that the Supreme Court's legitimacy is under uh, give some cover to Justice Ginsburg for her comments about uh, the Republican nominee. Um, here are a couple criticisms to to the court's decisions in the case that you were that you discussed, the United Women's Healthcare. The court's been accused of using made-up tests. Um, one commentator said the court should abandon the pre the pretense that anything other than policy preferences underlies its balancing of constitutional rights and interests in any given case. Uh, another commentator said that nothing but empty words separates our constitutional decision-making from judicial fiat, and another commentator said, the court's patent refusal to apply well-established law in a neutral way is indefensible and will undermine public confidence in the court as a fair and neutral arbitrator. And of course, as you know, these commentators were justices in the dissent in the United Women's Healthcare case. So my question is, isn't the court itself crying out to us that what they are doing uh, in many cases is nothing but naked policy making. Isn't the court giving us a roadmap to undermine its own legitimacy? It's, it's a really thoughtful question. I mean, first of all, I'd say all of those dissenting comments are the kinds of things you heard from the dissenters in Heller, right? So this is not a right-left game. This is people say in the when they're in the dissent, they tend to say, oh, this is lawless, and you're making stuff up as you go along. That's not a, it doesn't actually have a ton of force behind it. But I don't think that the fact that we have dissents suggests that open season on the court is, is what follows. Dissents are supposed to be robustly argued uh, counter arguments. And at their best, that's what dissents do. At their best, dissents say, this is the world as it should be. But I think just naked attacks from Ted Cruz, for instance, going after John Roberts, or Chuck Grassley going after John Roberts, that's not a dissent. That's just demagoguing. And because of the posture of the court, because the court cannot respond to political branches criticizing them, there's silence in response. 
So I guess what I would just say is you're describing a conversation between the majority and the dissent. That's not the court crying out for lawlessness. That's the court having a conversation about doctrine. But I think that when political actors use the court as a whipping boy to make a point, and the court has no apparatus to respond to that, I just think that's shooting ducks in a barrel. It's just not fair. Does it give the court, does it give the Senate cover to care more about Merrick Garland's um, political preferences than his academic qualifications? I think that the criticisms that you read fundamentally misunderstand what Supreme Court justices and judges do. Let's take Constitution. No right in the Constitution is absolute. Not freedom of speech, not the prohibition of race discrimination. The government can infringe free speech or discriminate based on race if it has a compelling interest. In fact, the key question in Fisher was whether diversity is a compelling interest. Even when there's discrimination that isn't against the suspect class, the government has to have at least a legitimate interest. What's a compelling interest? What's a legitimate interest? Or focus on the Fourth Amendment, which I was talking about. It prohibits unreasonable searches and seizures. What's unreasonable? There's no value-neutral way to answer the question of what's compelling or what's legitimate or what's reasonable. Justices are always making value choices. That's not unique to this era. It's not unique to the Supreme Court. It's inevitable. And inherently, the views that justices come to the bench with, the life experiences they bring, will determine how they decide cases. It's not that Justice Scalia is smarter than Justice Ginsburg, or Justice Ginsburg is smarter than Justice Scalia. It's their different values that lead to different conclusions. And that, too, has been true throughout American history. So to answer your latter question, presidents throughout history have appointed justices who share their values. Presidents who are more ideologically oriented, like a Roosevelt or a Reagan, do it more than presidents who are less ideologically oriented, like an Eisenhower. And it's equally appropriate for the Senate to consider the views of the nominee in deciding whether to advise and consent. And this, too, goes back to the earliest days of the country. It's inherent to a constitution. It's, it's an important question. I just want to give anyone else on the panel wants to weigh in. Well, I think certainly the Senate has the power not to approve a nominee if that's what it decides to uh, do. And, and uh, with regard to how acerbic the dissents were in Whole Women's Health, uh, you know, if, if Justice Scalia had still been on the court, uh, maybe they would have been even more acerbic. So, so uh, you know, we'll just never know, although we can <laughs> probably predict. All right, we have about uh, a little under 10 minutes left. Let me take a question that came in uh, on Twitter. It's about looking ahead. Um, if uh, Secretary Clinton is elected president, uh, does anyone anticipate uh, Judge Garland getting a hearing in the Senate before mid-January? And let me just add to that, um, what, uh, what does a Garland court look like? Does he become the new Anthony Kennedy and we don't care what Kennedy had for breakfast anymore? Um, I, think, uh, I think part of the answer to the first question depends on whether Republicans still control the Senate uh, or not after the election. Uh, but I, I certainly think that many people think uh, that Justice Garland will get uh, a hearing uh, if a uh, Judge Garland, if um, if the Democrats capture the White House and the Senate, I, I think that it makes sense. For one thing, we you know don't like to talk about too much, but he's 63 years old, um, 
and that is uh, quite old for a uh, nominee to the Supreme Court. The oldest, most recently, was Justice uh, Ginsburg, and she was 60 at the time. Of course, she's been there 23 years, so you know it worked out for her. Um, on your second point, I think that you're—it's absolutely right that um, that Justice Kennedy's power uh, will shift uh, quite a bit if there is a. Um, if there's a new, more liberal justice uh, appointed, and uh, by all um, sort of tracking that people have done, uh, Merrick Garland would seem to be more moderate uh, than uh, certainly most of the liberal um, justices. Maybe he and Justice Breyer uh, agree a lot more, and so I think it certainly would shift the center of the court. Anyone else want to weigh in on this? Okay, we'll take a question in the back. I had a question for Dean Chemerinsky. Um, for the abortion ruling, does that have any broader implications for how rational basis is determined? Um, will there need to be more evidence states need to provide for, uh, for even rational basis cases, or will it be restricted to abortion cases? In Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, an uh, opinion of Justices Kennedy, O'Connor, and Souter replaced strict scrutiny for abortion with the so-called undue burden test. And for those who aren't lawyers, the Supreme Court treats different claims of rights with different degree of suspicion of the legislature. Where they're very suspicious of the legislature, they use what's called strict scrutiny. The government action has to be necessary to achieve a compelling purpose. Where they're not suspicious of the legislature, it's what you refer to the rational basis test. The government action is rationally related to a legitimate government purpose. But unique to abortion, the Supreme Court has said that a government restriction of abortion before viability be allowed so long as not place an undue burden on the right. And the Supreme Court, in Justice Breyer's opinion, a whole woman's health, uses the undue burden test and strikes down the Texas law. I think it was clearly more than the kind of review there'd be under rational basis review. So I don't think this changes rational basis. I think it does give real teeth to the undue burden test it makes it likely that so many of the laws that have adopted that Dahlia refers to are redeclared unconstitutional. Okay, for the final question, I, I just want to ask the panel to reflect, uh, we've heard a little bit about this, on the 4-4 Supreme Court and what that has meant for the court's decisions. Justice Breyer yesterday said, ah, no big deal. Again, I'm paraphrasing Bob. So. <laughs> I know you're a journalist likes to quote this. Uh, I no big to deal. keep them accurate, you it know? Was, it was only four cases, no big deal. And I'm thinking about the uh, Zubik compromise, which Dahlia uh, alluded to earlier, as well as uh, Justice Thomas getting his voice. I mean, all kinds of weird dynamics. Uh, I, I don't know the numbers, the statistics, but in terms of the number of dissents that, uh, that uh, Justice Thomas wrote, I think he set a, certainly set a personal record. Um, so anyone want to reflect on that? Well, I mean, it certainly affected the California Teachers Union case, which is a very important case. Uh, it's uh, prevented Zubik from having a majority resolution one way or the other on the merits. Uh, that The uh, Texas immigration case would have had a decision, probably a conservative one, a and it's possible that the uh, Texas affirmative action case uh, could have been 4-4 uh, because Justice Kagan was recused from that case uh, due to her previous involvement in the Solicitor General's office. So, so I think that it certainly did have a huge impact. I mean, the immigration case has a huge impact on on people. There was a nationwide injunction by a single federal district judge that was affirmed by the Fifth Circuit, and now uh, th those policies can't take effect, as I understand it. 
I think Zubik, which I'm sorry we didn't get to, but you know that was the the Little Sisters case, the religious freedom case, and this question of whether uh, it burdened the Little Sisters, the the sort of nonprofit, uh, to force them to provide contraception for their employees. And this is, I, I think, and maybe Erwin is going to say I'm overstating it, but I think this is the central crisis we are facing in this country because it inflects on so, you know, this conflict between religious liberty on the one hand and statutes and, you know, the, the sort of regulatory state on the other, I think is the most urgent question that we have to face in this country because there's so many iterations of it. And so for the court to not get to it and not only not get to it, but do the just bizarre divorce magistrate judge, like, work it out parties, you know, take it back home. I think you're close. Good luck. Um, it was bizarre. And so I don't even class that with the four fours that did, you know, the, what, what you're, I talk, I class that in the mayhem four fours because it, all, you know, they vacated all the lower court rulings. They have to all go back now and nobody knows what the law is. So it just seems to me that that's a really good example of the sort of pernicious problem of the four four court. Both sides thought they won that the 4-4, four, four. Uh, and both sides were doing touchdown dances as though this was a huge win, which suggests to me that nobody knows what just happened. And um, I just think if we don't get this issue resolved crisply and cleanly, we really, really have you know, just a ripple effect that, that really impacts so many questions of religious liberty and where it intersects with the law. So for me, this is an example of why the 4-4 court is a disaster. It looks like, oh, look, they solved it in a minimalist way, and everybody's happy, but they actually didn't solve anything. I would say, uh, beyond the cases that actually went off on a 4-4 vote, there were a lot of cases that were decided unanimously or with uh, a, a great majority that really weren't decided. The, they were decided as to the specific question, but they didn't really have much guidance for the future. One of those was on, uh, in, in Rick's uh, area of expertise, the redistricting case. There were uh, Evanwall uh, from Texas that you have to use the total population when you're drawing uh, legislative districts, or do you just have to, or do you use just voter, eligible voters? And the court said, well, it's fine to use everyone, but they didn't say you had to use everyone, and they said, well, you know, later if another case comes to us, we'll answer that question. <laughs> and so a, a redistricting case from Virginia uh, that resulted in a, a federal court deciding that there should be another minority uh, district, the court got rid of that by saying that the challengers uh, didn't have standing to bring the suit and they didn't really rule on a pretty important question, it seems to me. And so I think besides the one we can count as four to four, I think we saw a number of decisions in which the court took uh, the easiest way out that they could find uh, and thus didn't provide a whole lot of guidance uh, for the future. Yeah. Um. I mean, I'll just speak to the DAPA case. Um, and right, this case has been mentioned, but it was a case, it, it, it uh, addressed Obama's executive uh, decisions uh, to bypass the Administrative Procedures Act um, and uh, create procedures by which parent, uh, undocumented parents who had children who were um, uh, here and protected under DACA could apply for some limited protections um, from removal. Uh, 
uh, and could apply for work permits. And that affects a lot of lives, not just the, the parents, but entire families. And I don't think the outcome would have been different. Um, but, uh, you know, it's one of those cases where it's not, I mean, it d doesn't feel like there was a, a real resolution and it seems like such an important issue and it came up because Congress is at an impasse, right? Congress will not act on that issue. Um, so, you know, uh, uh, it, it, this shouldn't have been uh, a judicial decision in the first place. It should be something that Congress acts on. One of the ways, this will be the, la the last word. Okay. Um, one of the ways that we haven't talked about that there's been an effect of NLA justices is with regard to the cases that have been taken for next year. Prior to Monday, June 27th, the Supreme Court had taken only 18 cases for next term. They then took 11 cases on June 27th and June 28th, so they now have 29 cases on the docket. There are almost no cases on the docket for next term posing constitutional issues. It seems very clear that the justs are trying to stay away from the kinds of matters that would produce 4-4 splits. So it'll be a very unusual term next year, but I hope so much you all come back to discussing of October term 2016. Thank you for joining us for UCI Law Talks, produced by the University of California Irvine School of Law.